You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. My lesson in this hour is entitled Moral Living in an Immoral World. Godly faith is designed for facing adversity and sinful challenges that we face in our lives. The strength of our faith can be observed in how we handle these challenges. Strong faith will handle them properly. A weaker faith will have a little more trouble in dealing with things like that. We live in a world that is devoid of faith in God, either because of ignorance or indifference or simply people deny there is a God. That's the world around us that we are living in. Without faith in God, there can be no confidence in the precepts and the principles of moral, godly living and godly character that's outlined in his word. And without that guideline and these precepts, uh, these worldly attractions then are going to be strong, we'll turn to materialism. We may become irresponsible or become irresponsible can become immoral and even become criminal because we are not following those things of God. God's way will always produce lasting good with the hope of a glorious uh, eternity. And not everyone, uh, no one has ever been entangled in immorality or committed crimes by following God's instructions for godly living. I've had people that have had their problems, and I would say, let's go to the Bible. Well, what does the Bible have to do with it? Well, it's kind of interesting that you find people have a problem with drinking. They have a problem with their foul language. They have a problem with all these things. The Bible says don't do it. You don't suffer the consequences. That's common sense. Do what the Bible says, and you won't have all these heartaches. And yet those people with heartaches... A lot of times don't even want to look at the Bible, don't want to believe in God. So we consider the fact that God's way is going to always lead us into godly living. And it will create in a person a strong, indestructible faith. This lesson will look at the challenges we face from sexual immorality in this world that seeks to draw us away from God. And being well informed about these challenges and what the Word of God says, we can learn how to strengthen our faith and defeat the temptations and defeat the encounters that we have around us in the world today. It's all around us. I don't need to go into detail to explain that and the, and the way our world, our media, the society as a whole is involved and caught up in this particular topic. Marriage between a real biological man and a real biological woman is a wonderful relationship designed and ordained by God. Since the creation of man and woman, God intended for them to have a sexual relationship to reproduce people for following generations and to populate the earth. I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 19 through 25 and read in the beginning what God said about the man-woman relationship. Genesis chapter 2 and beginning in verse 19. 
The scripture says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all, the, all cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. <clears throat> then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. When we look at this passage of scripture, we can go back to the creation of of all creatures, living creatures on the earth, in chapter 1, in verse 27 and 28, and God said that man should multiply and replenish the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he created this sexual union so humans could have more humans. This was his design in the way of the nature of things of God's creation. In chapter 2 and verse 24, notice something. This implies that God wanted human males and females to come together to produce children when the statement is made, man shall leave his father and mother. Well, now you've introduced in a place when there's only two people on the earth an expression father and mother. They didn't have a father or mother on this earth. So why is it worded this way? Well, the reason it's worded this way because the writer wrote it centuries after this event. And he was writing to people about how God started this relationship called man and woman or the marriage relationship. And he's describing it from the standpoint of the process of time. Father and mother will produce children. Man grows up, leaves his father and mother, and, and on it goes, you see. So this is the way that this, this Genesis is written. It is written to a bunch of people after the events took place. And that's why the language is that way. And as we look in, um, let me get caught up on my charts here. Look in chapter 2 in verses 24 through 25. This sexual union was ordained by God for the good of mankind only. Only in marriage. He designed it that way. That's the way it is to be and the only way it should be. Another point to consider. In Genesis 2, 24 through 25, it speaks of their nakedness. And they were not ashamed. Why would that statement be made? Because nakedness was a shameful thing among the Israelites. If they went out and just showed their nakedness in certain contexts. Here he's saying in the husband-wife relationship, there is no shame but the nakedness is suggestive of a sexual relationship here. And they were not ashamed because that is where it belongs. And that's the only place that it belongs. To be able to pro produce children, to be able to draw man and woman together in something that will help bond them together for their lives. Something special that would be given to them and they could have home and family. 
And only in marriage should the human nakedness and sexual desires be enjoyed without sin, without shame. We gather a lot from those statements that are made early on. And this special treasure is nobody else's on the earth but those who are married to each other. The word treasure is a key word that I'm going to use as we look further into the scriptures. So if we go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, it speaks here after the matter of the man and woman being driven out of the garden that the woman's desire shall be for her husband. Her husband, not somebody else's husband, but for her husband. This is indicative of the way this man and woman are one flesh and are be brought together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 1 through 5, Paul emphasizes this idea to avoid committing sexual sins that a man and a woman marry, that they invest in one another in that relationship, in that physical relationship. That is the place where it is to happen, not outside of it. And that's what is taught in those first five verses of 1 Corinthians. Nakedness and sexual desire are a natural part of every normal human being, but they must always be controlled so that they are not shared with anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, that is so foreign to the attitude of our society today. Man and woman being devoted, and that's the only place where this takes place because today it is promoted and people are able to profit by pushing it that it doesn't matter in this world. God's law of marriage for life is specifically designed to protect and preserve these special treasures, these special secrets that a husband and wife have in their relationship. We go to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1 through 9, Mark chapter 10 and verses 1 through 9, and go to Romans chapter two, uh, 7 and verse 2. And these are texts that I think most of us are familiar with about the Pharisees who ask about, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus explains to them the things concerning the marriage relationship. He takes it back to the very beginning with the man and woman in the Garden of Eden, the one flesh relationship in Genesis chapter 2 that we just read. He takes it all the way back to that and he shows that this is the way God wanted it. He didn't want it to be violated. And to protect that, He gives instructions about people who choose to either violate it or attempt to violate it. Remarriage after death of of a spouse, it continues to allow for the respect of preservation of the treasures that were shared. That was shared between a man and his wife. And yet one of them dies and they still have their treasure and they can share it with someone else. Now, the person who's dead is not on the earth anymore. So they can, by God's law, they're allowed to go and join with someone else and share treasures with them. God's prohibition of divorce. God hates divorce, as Malachi says. God's provision for divorce. It also seeks to, uh, or prohibition, to preserve those treasures. Adultery shares these treasures with the wrong people. It takes what is precious to the couple and then someone goes out here and shares what is special to them, unique to them only, and shares it with someone else. And therefore the adulterer, by God's law, forfeits his right to marry someone else when they're put away. They have to live without marriage unless they commit adultery by marrying again. And while at the same time God grants the innocent victim of the adultery that takes place 
the right to divorce the adulterer and share these treasures with someone else who is eligible to be able to marry. Divorce for just any cause then. You find two people wanting to divorce for any cause. You're taking something that they should only have with each other and be kept together with each other and take them sharing with someone else they have no business sharing them with. And there again, the, God, the things that the Lord says, this would con- constitute adultery or fornication. If a divorce happens that way and they marry another, they're guilty of adultery. They're taking that precious jewel or treasure that was to be shared for life with two people and they're sharing it with someone else. And so there is a strong, uh, God's laws are intended to protect that special relationship. Throughout the history of mankind, people have diluted the importance of this special tre- these special treasures with someone who is not uh, there, belongs to them. And adultery weakens that determination to protect and preserve the marriage. One commits adultery, they diluted that special value of what they had as husband and wife, and they've gone and shared it with someone else, and thus weakening that connection. And so the adulterer will often choose to get a divorce because now they want to share their treasures with someone else and not with the one they are supposed to keep it with for life. And their former relationship no longer has that special bonding power because they've been drawn to someone else. The innocent victim no longer feels comfortable with the mate who has gone and taken what they have treasured and shared it with another person. That's a discomfort. And reconciliation, if it's possible, if it can work out, takes a very, very long time to happen because a sacred trust has been broken. Listen, trust is easier maintained than regained. A relationship built on trust will stay strong. A relationship that is broken in that trust and then try to reestablish it, it's hard to get it back. Keep it without giving it up, and it's much easier. That is easier to maintain. In the last 75 years or so, there's a correlation that can be seen clearly between the rise of divorce among married people, and the increased relaxed attitude toward preserving the personal sexual treasures that help strengthen a relationship in a marriage. Just look at historical statistics in the last several years, and we consider some of the most aggressive attacks that have weakened this bond on marriage. Couples and societies loose attitude. They have a loose attitude toward it and preserving that power and the attractiveness of the human body. They want to share that with everybody. That's the going thing. That makes for good merchandise. They share it with everybody. I reflect on something specific and that is in the 60s and 70s when there was the lack of discipline with children whose parents were raising children in the, the 40s, late 40s and 50s They let the children do what they wanted to do. They gave them everything they had. Whatever your desire is, they raised a bunch of brats. I was among those brats. It was my age group. It was called hippies. Hippies said free love. Hippies said do what you want to do. Do what feels good. And that became the rule among a generation of people. And guess what? Their children learned that. And now those children that learned that are running our country. And guess what? They run their country on the principles by the things that their free-loving parents had laid down as a society and influencing 
our society. And the importance of preserving sexual treasure, it was either overlooked or these treasures are intentionally flaunted, especially among children. And this is the disheartening thing. In raising children, who parents who would flaunt their sexuality, you may say, how do they do that? Well, we'll look at it and see in just a moment. And the failure is not just an issue among adults, but it is cultivated early in childhood in many families. The treasure of innocent children are being exhibited for the public eye. Oh, isn't that little child cute when they do the tumbling and show off all their body? And the parents promote that, and they're proud of that. And so the child grows up with a sense of, I don't have things to preserve. I want to share it with everybody. They don't have those treasures. They've diluted those treasures. And the children grow up and become adults, and they teach their children. And they live as an adult the way with this sense of being willing to share the public's eye, within the public's eye those treasures. It's a blatant disregard uh, that surrounds us in every activity we see. You go to the store, you go to activities, you especially go to some athletic activities, and it is flaunted. We see it all around us. I don't have to go into detail about those kinds of things, but it's in problem of immodestly exposing and displaying the nakedness of the human body outside that special private relationship of marriage, and it is condoned and promoted by our society, and it is even among those who call themselves Christian. I don't see what's wrong with showing off my body to the world. Well, that's because they're not looking, and they're not paying attention to the damage that's being done. The focus of our study this morning is going to be in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3, or verse 4. This lays out a lot of information in just a few words. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. This text declares two things. It declares that in marriage, there is a God-given natural desire to embrace the beauty of the human body in a sexual relationship identified as marriage bed, in marriage. And the second thing, to share that same beauty of the human body outside of marriage is sin worthy of eternal condemnation. That's what Hebrews 13, 4 is teaching, that it is right and good in one setting wrong and is punishable in another setting. Marriage is honorable. Let's break this down a little bit here. Marriage is honorable. I have gotten too fast here. God honors this timeless relationship is what we're reading here. He set it up. He wants it to be that way. Jesus goes back and said, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He goes all the way back to the beginning about it. So it's been honorable for all these centuries and will be till the end of time. He created man and woman for that relationship in that uh, marriage relationship. In Matthew chapter 10 and verses 6 through 9, and I'll read that that we mentioned a while ago, what Jesus said. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The primary point of this expression, the two shall become one flesh, 
is that they have a God-given right to share their bodies in a sexual way that is prohibited in any other relationship. It defines one of the greatest privileges of marriage. And this is established in the beginning. And it's among all, meaning everyone, everyone on earth, in fact, should honor that arrangement of God. They don't all do it, and this text will bear that out. But it's to honor that relationship. The unmarried, they're to respect, they're to preserve their treasure in a way that honors the marriage law of God. Whether they get married the rest of their life or not, they still preserve that treasure to honor God's law of marriage and joining with someone else. The married are to respect and preserve their treasure for each other and not share them with anyone else on earth as long as they live. This is among all, so married or unmarried, and the bed undefiled. This identifies the sexual relationship. We can go to several places, but one is Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 20. It says, Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. His father's bed where the relationship is proper to be with his wife. But someone comes along and takes this wife and does the same thing as a husband and wife do, and they act as husband and wife, and he's condemning that cursed is one. But the father's bed, of course, is obvious. It is that physical relationship he's describing here. Anything associated with human nakedness, as we look, uh, get you caught up here. Associated with human nakedness and arousal of sexual desires, whether it's mentally thoughts, whether we're talking about words that we say, whether we're talking about physically touching, or whether we're talking about visually, which includes the way we may dress or the suggestive body movements, all are a part of the special treasure that is to be enjoyed in marriage. Those things are to be there in the marriage relationship. Now, what's implied by all of this, and it's obvious in the text, is that one can defile the bed. And that's what the last part of the verse is dealing with. It says, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It's implied by this context they are dishonorable because they're engaging in the same kind of activity only outside the rights or the privileges of marriage. And that is to be judged or condemned or rejected. Now, while honorable marriage and dishonorable fornication, they are opposite par uh, poles apart, just like uh, God and Satan are poles apart from each other. Both are defined by the same association with sexual desire. So look at this. Anything associated with human nakedness and the arousal of sexual desires, whether it's mentally, whether we're talking about the thoughts, the verbal words, the physical touch, or visually, including the apparel and suggested bodily movements, they are all a part of the sins of fornication and adultery and never honorable outside of marriage. So you're looking at the same thing that's right in one place and wrong in the other. And never should the two be diluted and mixed with each other, but rather they should be kept distinct. One, they should never engage in it. The other, they have a right to engage in it. And to do so, to engage in something outside of marriage, 
of course, is well defined. So what promotes sexual immoral thoughts and conduct in our society today? Well, it's simply this, and I think people are, are aware of this. I think people don't want to admit this. I think people maybe are ashamed to talk about this, but it's right there out there on the billboards and all around us, and that is this, the mental portrayal of nakedness outside of marriage. The portraying of that, of those who are outside the marriage relationship, without the mental images associated with human nakedness, we have no issue. We have no issue. We don't have the issue of the immoral desires if there is not this image to think about. But what's happening is people think, think about that and then they act on what they are thinking about. So preventing the images of nakedness is a major part of keeping the heart pure, isn't it? How can we prevent the ideas of nakedness? And this requires an understanding of what is appropriate. Sometimes we call it a modesty or modest apparel. And not just modest apparel, let me emphasize this. Some people want to say, well, it's just a matter of dress, and this dress is a certain way, and therefore I'm okay, I can go to dances as long as my uh, dress is the proper way, my, my clothing is the proper way. No, that's a minor part of it. The major part is the conduct, the conduct of a person. It may not matter what you're dressed in if your conduct leads to suggest nakedness and engagement in that relationship, then that's a part of it too. That's something that is going on all around us. Now that creates a two-way relationship that we have with one another. Number one, we are all responsible for controlling our eyes and thoughts to keep them pure. I've got to take care of Jimmy Stevens and what I see and how I, uh, how I digest that information I see. I've got to deal with that and I'm accountable for that. And you're accountable for what you see. You don't dwell on those things. You take your eyes away from them. You're in charge of that. But the second principle is this, and this is one where some have trouble. We're also responsible for respecting the eyes of others to help, keep, help them keep their thoughts pure. And many of the argument has been, well, uh, it's gonna, he's going to think evil of me no matter what I wear. So I'm just going to wear what I want to wear. Well, that means you're going to help him cause his eyes to lust. And so the idea is that if we're going to be respectful for each other and honor this proper placing of this, I'm going to keep my eyes off of things that are not good. And I am also going to do things in my life that will not cause someone else to get those thoughts that are not right, uh, to, to prevent them from getting those thoughts. And so these are two responsibilities both of us have. Now, there's two keys to understanding what God teaches on appropriate appearance in apparel and in conduct. The first one is that nakedness is to be shared mentally, physically, and all in the marriage relationship, number one. Number two is that the, the de determine what God has called from the scriptures and how he describes what is called shameful nakedness outside of marriage and then cover that part up. You want to put a tablecloth on a table, you figure out how big the table is. You go see what there is that is supposed to be covered up, and then you know how to cover it up. You get enough material to cover it up, a, a tablecloth. In the same way, when we determine what God says is shameful to expose, then when it comes to dressing, 
we will dress in a way that will cover that which would be shameful if it were exposed. And so these are the two principles that we're going to be looking at. So the subject of marriage, uh, modest apparel, and conduct, it is directly related to the marriage bed, whether one is married or not. If we don't get anything out of this lesson, let's get that point. Modesty is not a fashion criticism. When someone as a preacher or a teacher or a mother or father says, don't wear this, don't wear that, and gets onto it, it is not a fashion issue. It's a marriage issue. When we deal with our children, when we're trying to teach them about modesty, they need to understand you're talking about a marriage thing, not just simply a style thing. If we don't get past the style thing into the marriage thing, there's no teeth in modesty, in discussing modesty. So let's consider that. The subject of modest apparel and conduct is a matter directly related to the marriage relationship. It revolves around God, the God-given special secret treasures of the sexual relationship in marriage. It's experience, when it's experienced outside of the relationship of God, God, I mean a relationship of marriage, God calls it sin. So it's sinful. Can we know what God's modesty line is? Is there a line that God has given us from the scriptures? God has defined shameful nakedness and modesty. Uh, the question is, has God defined a shameful nakedness and modesty in the Bible? Is there a line that he has given to make it clear how we should dress? Well, let's consider that for a little bit. But first, I want to consider some objections. People who would object, well, no, God did not draw a line for modesty, modest apparel. It's not in the Bible. Oh, really? So you've researched the Bible. You've looked at all the ways God uses illustrations of what's shameful to be exposed. And the scriptures where he makes it clear that if a person exposes themselves like it, it is sin. You found all those scriptures. You've seen all of that. And you didn't find where God dealt with that? Sure that God didn't draw a line? Another one is, well, you can't use the Old Testament because we're not under the old law. Oh, really? Are we dealing with old law, new law ideas here? Are we dealing with old law, new law uh, matters that have to do with human nature and design? Another one is this. Well, godly men and women, they will just know what is immodest. Well, what is that? Well, they just know. Well, how would I know how to dress modestly? Well, you'll just know. That's a cop-out. If they know, then they will know where the line is. But if there is no line, how can they know where the line is? And so that is not a good reason would God give mankind such a powerful and potentially dangerous uh, human desire without clearly defining the guidelines for using its property? We don't have a problem understanding the dangers of letting this desire run loose, do we? It's a potential danger. We don't have the uh, uh, problem understanding the potential danger of a high-powered rifle, do we? We don't have the uh, 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 trouble understanding the power and, uh, and the damage that a, an automobile can, can cause because of its mass and its power and its speed. We don't have a problem with that, do we? Why? Because we have specific instructions in how it ought to be handled. Dangerous things are handled carefully 
ends precisely. Do you think God would give the desire of humans that could be let loose and do all kinds of things and not give them specific ways to handle it? I don't believe so. I believe God has given us specific ways in dealing with it. How would God's laws on shameful nakedness be enforced if he did not clearly define shameful nakedness? Go over to the book of Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. I'm not going to read that. You can read it on your own sometime. And all the ways he had to address something that we need to address in our world today, and it had to do with sexual sins. And in the instructions that he gives there, he says this is called nakedness. Oh, but there is no line of nakedness, so we don't really know. And, and how can you prosecute the person who has uh, done these things according to the law of Moses here, but there's no, there's no law on it? Well, that doesn't make sense. God was specific, and he had a reason to be specific, and he gave them specific markers on how they should handle themselves. We can know what is modest by first understanding what he calls is shameful and then making sure that shameful is covered up. But the old, both the Old Testament and New Testament, they can be used since nakedness and issues with sexual sins has been around since the patriarchal age, uh, the mosaic age, the Christian age, the human anatomy and psychology. They haven't changed since the beginning of time. Look into the scriptures. Go all the way through them. Judah and Tamar. You've got David and Bathsheba. You've got Amnon and Tamar. You've got Jesus saying in Matthew 5, 28, who looks on a woman to lust after has committed adultery with him in his heart. You've got the Corinthian brethren who are harboring a man who's taken his father's wife and committed adultery with him. So we can't look at that and say, well, that's under the Old Testament. Christ died and we're not under the Old Testament. We can't get anything out of that to apply to the subject of modesty. We're not dealing with Old and New Covenant. We're dealing with the human nature and what God has given as a law where Jesus said from the beginning, is this is the way it should be and it should be from here on out when he talked about that relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 6, the scripture says, Moses had crossed the, uh, uh, Paul rather described Moses crossing the Red Sea with the Israelites and how that they had, uh, had, that they had, they had failed to obey God after they'd gone into the wilderness there. And it says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The people in the wilderness had desires and lusts just like we do today. And he's saying, look at those examples, learn from them, because what they were challenged with in their desires, we are today the same thing, so we can learn from them. Those are lessons that are real and are valuable. So where is God's line between shameful nakedness and modest apparel and conduct. Where is that line that he has drawn? First of all, consider Adam and Eve and what happened to them. In, in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 6 through 10 and in verse 21, I'll not read that account and take the time for that, but I think you're aware that once they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were both naked and not ashamed, and now they were ashamed of being naked out in the open in the presence of God, and they covered themselves. Well, notice the choice of the covering that they had. It still left them shamefully naked. 
It wasn't good enough to satisfy God. Verse 7, the word coverings here carries the idea of, of an apron or a girdle covering of the waist and the hip area. That was just about all they had, like a breech cloth, according to the definition of these words. And so God made proper garments for them, made tunics for them. The word tunic here means something that can be worn against the skin, generally with sleeves to the knees, but seldom to the ankles. From to cover, coat, garment, or robe, the verb for covering, to cover. And so this is what God made. He saw what they put on, and he wasn't satisfied, so he covered them in a standard of dress that he wanted for husbands and wives, or men and women, at this time. So theirs was the, there was the standard set. The lines of covering of the shoulders to the knees in Genesis 3 they are consistent with what the rest of the Bible uses as a guideline for exposure of shameful nakedness. Now I want to consider something. God used this standard of shameful nakedness in describing various, uh, various situations. Someone says, yeah, but in the Old Testament, he's talking about the shamefulness of Babylon and the exposure of nakedness in the case of this, the nation of Babylon. My question is this, why did he use that illustration to describe Babylon? What is it about the illustration? Was it a false idea or was it a true idea about shameful nakedness? Why did he make something up? Is it something false? So we're going to look at that. We're going to see that the idea God has in mind for what he calls shameful nakedness, he's applied it to nations as they left him and were shamefully acting. And he also applies it to the individual because that's how he sees it and how he thinks about it. So we're looking for his lines, and let's look at those lines for just a moment. The thighs. The thigh is to be covered. Uh, it says in Leviticus chapter 28 and 42 through 43 and chapter 20 and verse 26 that the priests were obligated to cover their thighs, their garments to cover their thighs, lest there be shame in exposing their nakedness. It says in Exodus 28, And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons. Then, And when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to the minister to the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity. Now someone might say, well, that's just to the thighs. Well, let's get ridiculous a little bit here. From the waist to the thighs, that brings us back to Adam and Eve when they made their fig leaf coverings from the waist to the thighs. That expression, to the thighs, means to include the thighs. And so he's saying that would be shameful to expose among the priests. They were among heathen nations who were in the practice of exposing nakedness and living vilely and corrupt. And they needed to establish that contrast with those foreign nations uh, that were living that way. In Exodus 20 and verse 26, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. A second example we have is Babylon's wickedness is described by Isaiah in Isaiah 47 verses one through three. It said, take a millstone and grind meal, remove your veil, take off your skirt, uncover the thigh, and pass through the rivers, your nakedness shall be uncovered. 
Yes, your shame shall be seen. To uncover the thighs is a shameful exposure. The knee is a natural, visual, physical area or break that becomes as a description of God here in the idea of that section of the body. The more the thigh is exposed, the more is the excitement of the imagination of what's higher than that. Ask any man. He will tell you, yes, that's the case. Now, of course, a godly man is not going to dwell on that. But as a man, he would understand that, especially if he's a married man. And the exposure of the thigh has that danger of leading to those thoughts. That's why God made this law or this design and identified it as shameful. The second section, the hip section, we call it the midsection. I want to look at an example that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 4. Nahash, the Ammonite king, had died. And David wanted to pay tribute to this king. He sent his servants to, uh, to, to the funeral, in essence, to go and pay tribute to the king Nahash. But when he got there, Hanan, his son, questioned what their purpose was. And he caused them to be shamed by cutting up their garments. Listen, if you will, in 2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 4. Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Men were greatly ashamed. If you read down further in verse 5, they were greatly ashamed for that exposure. Isaiah, he speaks of the exposure of the buttocks as shameful. In Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 2 through 4, it's describing Egypt's shame. And he uses the illustration of the human body, a factual thing to apply to the shame of Egypt. And so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Let's look at the third section that he gives us a line. And that is breasts or the chest. A woman's breasts are given for pleasure for her husband and no other man. Just for her husband. Exposed cleavage of the breasts is a major part of that attraction. Isn't that a popular style today? That exposure, that cleavage is a signal to say, I want you to start imagining what else there is. It is an invitation to think that. That is a shameful way of looking at that person instead of a godly way. A woman who exposes herself like that is just sending out invitations to men to look at and to think. And so the Bible speaking of this part of the body, I'll call it the chest area of the body. Look in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15 through 20. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15 through 20. It says, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Now he's not talking about drinking literal water. Watch it carefully. Should your fountain be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street... Let them be only for your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. 
So he's describing a treasure that he has, and he's gone out and he's just shared it with everybody. He's dispersed what he has as a blessing. And he's pointing to the idea of the marriage relationship between husband and wife, that you have a treasure that should be shared with no one. As a loving deer and a grateful doe, let her breast satisfy him at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? I hope you have ability to understand what he's saying. The enraptured relationship of husband and wife is exactly where that is to take place. Why should you take that which is talking about the chest or breast here? Why should you take that which uh, uh, that you have? Why should you share that or allow that to be shared? Or why should you go seek out and embrace another woman that's not yours. And he illustrates it by this exposure. It tells me that God has a thought here about that part of the body. It's the attraction of harlots. In Ezekiel chapter 23 and verse 3, verse 8, verse 10, verse 18, it says they committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts there were embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Verse 8. She has never given up her harlotry from Egypt, for in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin breast, and poured out their immorality on her. Verse 10, they uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. Verse 18, she revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness, Thus, in verse 21, you, you call to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. Part of the body is a space, special thing. It is to be a treasure, not to be shared with the world, but to be shared only in marriage. And that's what makes it shameful in these contexts is that they have done that. They have taken something precious and shared it with the wrong thing. Hosea, wrong people. Hosea 2 and verse 5. Hosea 2 and verse 2, it says, Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Verse 5, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers. So we have here a clear explanation of that section of the body. When clothing or bodily movements or bodily attitudes begin to draw attention to the thighs, draw attention to the hips, draw attention to the chest area, they can excite sexual desires for good or for shame associated with fornication. It's foolish to argue that God has not drawn a line. To argue to try to wear a style and say, well, God didn't draw a line, so I'm going to wear this style. Oh, really? A person like that probably hasn't studied the Bible thoroughly, probably only wants to look at it through the prejudiced view of the excitement they can get for being able to expose themselves. That is a sad attitude. However, God's idea of modesty is still, with, is still within the extreme, you might say. It is... Uh, one that is respected even in our immoral society. But speaking for men, God intentionally designed the male mind to be drawn to the attractiveness 
of the exposed female in the honorable relationship of marriage. If a wife were to say, uh, well, my husband just has a dirty mind. She's just indicted him in his relationship to her. What is he sharing with her? If he is thinking thoughts of someone else, and certainly that would be thoughts that are immoral, but these thoughts are natural. God has, has established it that way. He's established the lines to help us all fight the battle against causing others to sin with their eyes and their hearts. Wives, daughters, and sisters in Christ, the battle against immorality in this world is strong against your husbands and your sons and your brothers in Christ. It's all around. And good Christian men are fighting the battle and some don't win. And so we need to have women behind the ability to help preserve men and what they see and need to be on board with helping. Following God's lines in appearance go a long way to help prevent lust and sin. All males and females should be on guard for this, not just because he said so, because they prevent lust and shame. Shameful nakedness, it can be exposed in different ways. And I go through this section here because invariably somebody will listen to a lesson like this and, and, and they will not be willing to understand that what they are doing is actually shameful because, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me. And I think we need to be more specific. Let's consider bodily movements. We're not just talking about a covering that covers us, a certain style of clothing that goes a certain length. It could be bodily movements that can create that image of nakedness in the minds of those who observe it. Even fully clothed person, the body language, it can suggest that. Dancing does that. Be fully clothed. But dancing has a context and an environment and an atmosphere that is trying to stir that kind of thinking beyond just simply what's happening. But the bodily movements that are involved, the touch, the familiarity, dancing. I am saddened to hear, and I hear it from time to time, that there are Christians who say, I, don't, I just really don't see anything wrong with dancing. Either they're terribly naive or they're terribly dishonest. What's wrong with dancing? It offers that opportunity to create the image of something beyond just the dance. And so dancing. So we go from there, we go to cheerleading. Cheerleaders. Today, cheerleaders are designed, their choreography is designed to entice the minds of men, predominantly, in their activities, in what they do. And so we find cheerleading, provocative walking, that's always been the uh, scene of seedy movies where a woman walks a certain way and draws attention, fully clothed. Yes, a woman could walk that way. A man could walk that way. Movements or poses. Godly people turn their eyes from things like that. And guess who's looking at those kinds of things? Well, it's not the godly. And if it's not the godly, it's the ungodly. And those people who weigh dress that way, they're feeding that ungodly mind. Hand and facial gestures, suggestive words, lips, eyes even, can stimulate sensual thoughts. Proverbs 5 through 7 describes about the eyes and the lips of, of a woman who is a seductress to draw somebody into that. 
tight-fitting clothes. Somebody can be fully covered, offering a false sense of security. Well, I'm fully covered in the false sense of this security they have here, but yet the form that they portray with the tight-fitting clothes is still that naked form. So you haven't hidden it. You, in some ways, have exaggerated it. So here again, people think, well, I'm fully covered, and they don't stop and think, wait a minute. I'm still showing something that will create that image in the minds of men. I don't know what terms are in the last 30 minutes, but skinny jeans used to be an expression, leggings or tights, or, or even some women feel the security, and women, and, and men too, that they would wear real short things but wear the leggings, which gives the conformity of their own exposed legs in that, and they feel secure about that. Think about that. Special occasions. Special occasions don't change sexual desire. Men don't think about the occasion. Ungodly men will ignore as they see something going on. But I mean, they will look at those things and they don't think special occasions. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We're at a swimming pool and they're swimming. So I'm not supposed to think that. That's not how it works, folks. They will think whatever they want, whether it's a swimming pool or a special event or a school activity or some assignment where there is that exposure. That special occasion doesn't nix the special, uh, the uh, uh, personal desire or that sexual desire in men. Godly men turn their eyes away. What are we talking about? Thin, strapless, low-cut, formal proms or wedding dresses? Wedding dresses. It's sad to even see maybe a Christian young lady, usually the men wear enough clothes, if it's blue jeans and a tux coat or something, on their wedding day, the day where they enter into a relationship where they can share for each other that which was to be private until that moment. On that day, they share it with everybody that's there at their wedding because of the type of dress they have, of all things, to expose it. But style and fashion say that's what they ought to do. Athletics or in drama, they have a required certain attire they're supposed to wear, both males and females, not just women. Uh, swimming, outdoor recreational attire, both males and females. Don't let anyone tell you uh, and talk you into surrendering your marriage treasures that you have to save for somebody else for the rest of your life because you have to wear something to qualify for this or that. I've known of people refused the event because they were requested to wear something that was indecent. I appreciate that. That the, the preserving of a lifelong relationship and the treasure I want to give to my mate was more important than the 30 seconds it would take or the 10 seconds it would take to run an event in a track meet or play a tennis game or whatever it might be. They thought more of that and I have appreciate that but some people don't think of it that way. Generally, the worldly attitude that you see in people like that is that they are, uh, or rather, they, they have other issues going on in their life as well if they're willing to share themselves like that. And finally, short and revealing. I think this is obvious. I don't think I have to say a whole lot about this one except for this. The exposed human body alone stirs thoughts. But even without, the project, even without provocative gestures, a person doesn't have to, to walk a certain way. Just expose the flesh, and that's enough. It's not uncommon for people to intentionally expose their underwear. Have you seen that? I have. 
women do it, men do it. The expression of that which is tied closely to those secret treasures that is next to it is a suggestion. It is something young boys get caught in attention looking at. And yet there is no sense of propriety among some on these things. Exposing the special treasures of marriage and is uh, it, treasure of marital nakedness is the issue. Now, let's turn it over for a little bit and get away from that subject. I don't enjoy teaching that first part. I never do. I don't get pleasure out of it. But what we have is all of this bombarding us day in and day out. If we don't speak up about it and talk about it and teach ourselves and our children about it, it doesn't get taught. And so they fall right into the paths of those who are guilty of these things. Let's look at the godliness that God talks about. In First Timothy chapter 2 and verses 9 through 10, it says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothes, but which is proper for women professing godliness. Now I want to take the first two words that have to do with moderation or modesty. Modesty and moderation moderation and this is a king james version that i'm looking at the word modesty or moderation means to avoid drawing attention to oneself for the wrong reason uh, includes uh, extravagant attire scant attire even decent attire worn badly or displayed badly so you look in here and you say well what does it mean about length of clothing when it talks about hair and gold and pearls I think it's possible for us to put so much emphasis on that material appearance that what people see about us is the material appearance. What they need to see is a godly person. And they need to see a heart that is trying to serve God. But some people cover that up with things that prevent that from happening. And one of those things is that distraction of the scant attire. It would be in the list as well. The kind of person we are is the kind of person we will attract if a godly person demonstrates themselves in a godly way, a boy, for example, going looking for a girl, he's going to look for a girl that's godly. What is he going to look for in that girl? And if he finds one that is showing off everything she has, he better go look somewhere else and find one that is showing her godliness and her purity. And so this is the idea of godliness. When people are immodest, as we said before, decent people turn their heads, and that leaves the indecent ones looking at these styles. Godliness with good works. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Godliness and good works. In like manner, both men and women, it applies to them. This word in like manner, it ties them both together for the need for godliness and good works. And, and uh, we sometimes get caught up more on style than godliness and good works. It's, it's about me. It's about what I want. A teenage girl comes in and says, but that's not what I want. What does God want? Children need to be taught that it's what God wants that they should be wanting, not what they want. How many parents do you know that will cater to the whining of their daughters and sons because it's what they want? And so they give in to that, and the child grows up with that, and they become whatever the world wants them to be. Generally, this worldly attitude will follow them everywhere they go in other things of life. Can we attract people with shameful nakedness and then say, would you study the Bible with me? I don't think we'd be very effective in that. 
propriety or proper. I'm getting ahead of myself with my button here. Proper for pleasing God. Godly minds ask first, what would please God? And then they dress accordingly. We look in Philippians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, and there are some words for Christians to honor. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in godliness and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. A person with this kind of mind has no problem with the subject of God's design for modesty. If their godliness is there, their propriety, their properness, they're going to look at those things and they're going to be discerning to do. What is it that pleases God? Not what pleases me. Godly minds understand that immodest apparel and conduct, they are the bait for fornication. They are the one the streetwalkers use to draw people into fornication. And yet people will dress the same way and be critical of those who live a very corrupt life like that. And for that reason, we find scriptures in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, flee sexual immorality, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, flee also youthful lust, 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, abstain from every form of evil. Stay away from the bait that will lead you into these things. Now, this needs to be done early. Teach children early. The home is God's sex education ground, a place for the sex education environment. The age of a child's understanding of sexual matters is not exactly known. A child will not come up to you playing with the toys in the sandbox and one day says, mother and father, I'm beginning to understand sexual concepts. They're not going to do that. They're not going to walk in and announce that. So how do you deal with that when they do come face to face with it at a level of maturity? You start with them and put them in the habit of proper attire and proper attitudes before they understand it. And then when that time comes, they'll be ready. And it will be much easier to talk with them about the things behind it. And especially if you connect it to a marriage relationship. That will be something to be easier to deal with later on. So establish it early. In fact, some of them will grow up and they will defend that style. They will defend modesty. I have a class that I've taught for years and all it was was girls. Uh, they'd known them since they were babies and they grew up and they wound up in my teenage class and and uh, we've talked about uh, things like this, things that were the school would insist upon them doing. And they actually would just, they defended it. They would get cross purposes and, and get in conflict with people because they didn't believe it was right to expose themselves, whether it was school officials or fellow classmates or teammates. And so they were championing something they had been taught all their life. And instead of going along and saying, I wonder if I can do this, they said, that's wrong, and what's right is what the Bible says. And so it can be done. Well, isn't that teaching that their bodies are shameful? I've heard this before. You're telling that child not to show off their body because it's shameful to show it off. You know, that has been said by those who are putting out propaganda to try to stir up immoral minds. It's teaching them that the body is powerful and that it's wonderful and that it contains special treasures, 
And those treasures are worth preserving and keeping and not just casting out among people and wasting them as if they were just giving away free prizes. It's teaching a child that I have a treasure here and I'm going to die to defend it. I'm going to preserve it because I want to save it for somebody special for the rest of my life. Why are marriages falling apart so easily today? Because two going into it haven't committed themselves for this rest of the life commitment to each other. And so this is a part of that. A child needs to be taught that. Teach that God has given them that power. Teach that modest apparel and conduct are how God wants them to respect themselves. Indoctrinate children in this way. Sadly, parents teach their children to dress and act like fornicators by letting them share their treasures in public. And then they fear for the morality of my little children here later on. They have put them in these costumes that expose their nakedness. They have promoted their activities that expose their nakedness. And then they wonder, what's going to happen to them morally? Well, they set them up for it. They cause them to be in that context where desire can be of the wrong desire. So sadly, parents will do that. Sadly, many parents are teaching their children that it's okay to give away their purity by teaching that it's okay to expose their nakedness in public. It's okay to get involved with this activity. Husbands and fathers are the best advisors for wives and daughters on how men look at women and what is proper dress. I've had a woman come up to me and she just jumped all over me about the fact that her daughter was a cheerleader and it built her self-esteem and her cheerleading activities, of course, exposed her nakedness and she didn't even understand or willing to understand what the danger was in that. It's possible, listen carefully, it's possible for husbands to help their wives cheat on them by not encouraging their wives to preserve their nakedness from other men, and wives may not even be aware that they're cheating on their husbands while they're doing it. Think about it. Oh, committing adultery, that's cheating on the husband. How do you get to adultery? You start exposing yourself and inciting the different desires from somebody of the wrong person. And it could have started back there where the husband didn't care and he thought his wife looked good and she ought to show off herself. And then she winds up getting with another man and he has been helping her commit adultery. This happens too often, unfortunately. Care enough to protect your wives and daughters and the special treasures that they have. Wives and mothers, help preserve the decency of your husbands. Be open with each other and humble to each other in that relationship so that you can look for the goal of being right with God, not get into a conflict and a fight with each other. It's to help each other go to heaven. That is the perfect. Sadly, society will promote what it abhors. I don't want a sexual offender living in my neighborhood. I don't want that. I don't want any child molesters or sexually or those who are guilty of sexual assault. And, oh, this is such a terrible thing. So they send their daughters out and their sons out and they dress immodestly in the world and people in the world then are stirred by desire and some of those people go too far and they become the predators that the people said, I don't want them to be near them, but they are making it possible for that to happen. They don't realize that. But that's what's going on in our world today. My wife took a course in college. It was a music education course and had a teacher 
Uh, her name was Jenny Irvin. Do y'all know Jenny Irvin? No, you wouldn't know her. Uh, she's probably not even alive today. But she made this statement as a professional in the field of education. She told her students, and I don't even know if she had a faith. I don't even know if she believed in God. But she said this, sit or bend over in front of a mirror and see what your students see. See what your students see. See what others see, in other words. Look at yourself in the mirror or get someone to help you determine what am I exposing so you can make that change. Well, you've been a very patient audience, and this is a tedious subject, but it's one I think we need to look at and address. In conclusion, the gift of human sexuality is beautifully designed by God. I don't want us to get the impression that everything is just totally against it. No. It's not that way. God has given it a place, and it is a beautiful range, arrangement, a beautiful relationship to be expressed and enjoyed as a special treasure only in the marriage relationship. The proper attire and conduct are necessary for preserving that treasure. Use your godly character to attract people. Don't use your bodies. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 addresses women here, but it addresses a principle that's neither male nor female. It applies to both. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with, an incorruptible, uh, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. This part that we see here is that incorruptible nature of a, per, of a person, that incorruptible beauty. That could go for man and woman, incorruptible, something that's not corrupted, in other words. Let us put ourselves in a place where we have that right example, and we will draw attention to those who are godly, or draw or godly people to our attention. I appreciate your patience in this lesson and the time it took to present this. Uh, this is not how long the rest of them will be. I'll promise you that. But this lesson here is one that I think we all hopefully will benefit from and, and can grow from. We will at this time offer an invitation. If there's anyone here who wants to make a change in their life, if there's someone who's not a Christian who wants their sins washed away, if there's someone who's been guilty of stirring the thoughts of others just like this in a public context, I suggest to you that won't go away by itself. You need to address it, need to do something with it. If you need to do something this morning, we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing this song. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.